the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Chuck Olmstead, and we're recording today for the Widows Project. With me this morning is Maureen Miller. And Maureen, uh, welcome to Live from Seattle. Thank you. Well, I love to hear stories, and uh, I'd like for you to share a little bit. Did you grow up here in the Everett area? Are you from the Northwest? Um, I'm originally from Wyoming. My uh-huh. family moved out here when I was um, eight years old into the Edmonds area. So I grew up in Edmonds. Went to uh, Edmonds Woodway High School? Or? I went to Woodway High School. And uh, graduated from there. So what was life like in Edmonds uh, back in those days? You know, I love Edmonds. As far as a, a town and a city, I loved out Edmonds um, then and now. My uh, my father died when I was 12 years old. So um, I'm not only a widow, I am um, the child of a widow. So um, I can't say that um, childhood after that part was really wonderful because there were a lot of changes, and my mother was not prepared to to be a widow. She was a homemaker, and our fa- my father had um, gone to school late and was now out working for the state of Washington and would have done well had he lived long enough to do that, but he was 36 years old when he passed. So we were kind of stuck in um, in a bit of a poverty state, and my mother went to started going to school full-time during the days and working nights to support herself, and then I took care of the two younger children um, who were at home. I had a sibling who was six years younger than myself and one that was 11 y- years younger. So as a 12-year-old, you were 12 at the time, so yes. you're, you're kind of taking on almost a motherly role. Obviously, your mom was involved, but yet you were starting to take on some of those tasks at that young age. Yeah. How do you think your mother dealt with all of that? Was it tough on her? It was terribly tough on her, and she didn't cope well. So she went through kind of like a, a second teenagerhood for a while where she you know, lived on the wild side a little bit. She, um, she's you know, angry and bitter for a while. Then she got involved in a program through the Catholic Church, which is the church that I grew up in. Yeah. It was for divorced and widowed mm-hmm. um, individuals, and she got into that program. Um, it helped her a long ways in coming to healing, and she then um, worked as a facilitator um, and a coordinator for that program for many years thereafter. So graduated from high school. Mm-hmm. What happened with you next? I got married about when I was about 20, that marriage did not last, so I had um, stayed home and did foster parenting um, during the years of that marriage. I'd worked out of the home a little bit, but mostly I had worked as a foster parent during that time. And um, after six and a half years, my husband and I parted. I had been the victim of a violent crime, and we just couldn't work through that mm-hmm. um, as a couple. So we, we separated and then later divorced. And then I remarried when I was 30 to John Miller, who was my husband for 21 years thereafter. So you had experienced in 25 years, almost 30 years, you had experienced a lot of loss and separation as far as relationship was concerned. So tell me about John. John was my gift from the Lord. He was he was funny, he was warm, and he loved me utterly unconditionally. For all my flaws and my hurts and 
everything else in life, John was um, the one person who I was just completely safe with all the time. And I enjoyed his company. He was, you know, he was my best friend. I enjoyed more than anything just um, being in his company. How long were you been married to John then? We were married for 21 years. They also ended up being hard years because just before John and I were married, he had a, uh, a work injury that was thought to be a broken ankle. Uh, but as it turned out, um, it was much more serious and led to other things. So he, um, we had had 15 surgeries um, in the course of 17 years um, on his leg and his hip and, and other things. And he had also later injured his elbow. So um, he was in and out of the, uh, in and out of surgeries all the time. And uh, so I was the one who ended up being the, uh, the provider for the family. He was the at-home parent, and I was out in the workforce. Mm -hmm. So you had children? We did. We mm -hmm. did. We had, uh, John came with kids, mm -hmm. so um, he brought me Aaron and Jeff, um, and uh, and then we, much to our surprise, um, had two kids. John had had a vasectomy after um, Jeff, his youngest, in his first marriage. And so we thought that was a closed door, and I entered into the marriage expecting to not have my own kids ever. But um, shortly after we were married, I was working for in a grocery industry, and I decided to check with the union to see if they covered a reversal, and much to my shock, they did. So he had the surgery, and, and it worked. So our first um, son, John Michael, was um, born stillborn. But then you you had two more. Yes, we did. We had Tim Tim first, and um, Tim was the delight of our lives, John and I both. So um, we were just content enjoying enjoying Tim. Um, the, John's oldest, um, Aaron, was living with us at that time, and him and Tim had a lot of fun together um, as well. And uh, we were content with that, but as Tim got a little older, he wanted us to have five more kids. So we... <laughs> We didn't. We didn't go with the five more plan, but we thought, well, we could, we could try one more. And John had always wanted a daughter, and he had had um, three boys. Um, so we tried, and uh, um, it took us a while to conceive. But then we um, did, and lost another pregnancy. Mm -hmm. um, but then, when I was thirty-eight years old, I gave birth to my daughter Annie. How, I bet he was very excited. He was. So tell me about the process. Uh how many years ago did you lose John? It's been 10 years, mm -hmm. 2008. Uh, was there a progressive illness, or what happened? There there was. So um, as I had mentioned earlier, he had had um, a, a lot of um, issues with surgeries and such and, and had come to the point where he lived in, in chronic pain. Um, he um, had... Was had to take a lot of medications for those pain medicines. So, you know, he had ended up in a situation where he not only had to deal with um, um, an an addiction, but not not like a drug addict addiction, but an addiction with um, opioids, which he didn't always cope well with. But he also had a lot of other medications that are um, now known to be significant contributors to heart disease. And so we had um, shortly after Annie was born, um, we started realizing that John did have heart disease, and he had um, stints put in when she was about a year old and had gone in and had stints put in um, once or twice since then. Um, 
but the heart disease um, was reoccurring, and so um, John died from the heart disease. You have um, still some children at home at that time? Yes, yes. Annie was um, Annie was 12 when John died, and Tim was 18. He was a senior in high school. So your daughter experienced the same thing you did when you she were did. 12 she years did. old and lost her father. So tell me about that time. You had experienced a lot yeah. of loss in your life already. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, this was... This was something different, I'm sure. Yeah, and uh, and life is already hard, but a different type of hard. The wrestling with uh, managing the opioids had become a significant problem in our household. So um, I had been praying and asking God for, um, for a time when we could just live as a healthy family. And, uh, and so in a sense that... Um, you know, John's passing was um, was an opportunity for um, me and my kids to walk into um, a healthier journey. Um, but it was still a significant loss because we all knew we all knew what a wonderful man the healthy John was. We hadn't seen the healthy John for a few years, but um, but we had really missed him. And also, in during those um, years leading up before his death, um, his. His health problems had been such that um, home repairs and all that kind of stuff, they just didn't happen. So our household had gone, um, physical house had gone into um, some disrepair. And I had come to a place where I had felt a lot of discouragement about ever being able to get out of this or to turn the um, turn the tide that was going on in my life. So there were emotional disrepair, but there was also physical disrepair, wasn't there? Yeah. And you needed a, a kind of a whole new remodel. So what happened? John was John was found by um, some men with the church when he had passed away. And um, Pastor Chris um, from our church showed up. Him and a few others had showed up at my work to let me know that um, John had been um, found and he had, he had died. Chris was wonderful. He was... Chris was the um, the partner that God used to get me through that time. He was um, there for me emotionally. He would um, check in with me every few days for a long time, mm-hmm. um, seeing how I was doing. He had asked me what all the needs were, and when he came into came into the house and you know kind of looked around and saw that there were needs, he said, "What can we do to help you here?" Um, he brought in teams from the church to um, to repair a number of things inside the house, um, and uh, and during that time too, that I had had um, Ben Dixon, who was one of the he, I don't think he was a pastor there, but he was definitely a leader in our church, even if he was not a pastor. And I had um, had him and his wife over for dinner, and uh, he used to flip homes with his dad. So he looked around and said, "You know, I you, you need a few things here." And I said, "Yeah." And 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 when I have the money, we'll we'll get them done. He goes, "You know, I think I think we can help with that." So um, he gathered a team of the interns that worked with him out of Mill Creek Foursquare together to paint my house. And then um, Chris had made an announcement to the whole church. That, um, for anybody else who was willing to help um, to come. And uh, so I had um, a plethora of individuals from our church that showed up to paint the exterior of my house and our fence and everything. What did that mean to you? 
It meant hope and light. It felt it felt good to be saw to be noticed, to be seen, and and to be cared about. I don't think there are words that could really express what a turning point that was in in my future, primarily through my mental health of just being able to feel a sense of goodwill in life and support in life. Because you've been going through a process even before John passed that it sounds to me like there had been this slow death that had taken place as far as hope is concerned. Yeah, yeah, there just was. Just because of his, yeah. his mental or his physical and the condition of the house and all those things. So yeah. there were a group of people that came in and gave you a physical change that began also a spiritual change in yes. your life. Yes. Well, talk to me about that. The spiritual change that those days and opportunities in my life ignited was an opportunity for me to have enough of my own physical, mental, and spiritual needs met that I could turn around and look outward more towards other people and be more of a giver than um, being caught up in my own neediness. Interesting. It's almost like your physical body, when there's an injury... Your body has to garner all of its resources back into itself so it can somehow survive. Yeah. And it sounds like in your life, that's what was happening. All your all your energy was back just to survival. Yes. And now that there was healing beginning to take place, you could begin to look outside of yourself and, and exert that energy, spiritual and emotional energy towards others. Yes. That's an, that's an amazing process, isn't it? How, how long a period of time did the process after John's passing, did these things begin to take place? Was it mm. a year, two years? Not even that long. There was, shortly after John's death, there was a woman at the church that I would run into when we brought our kids to um, the youth group. So my daughter was in the sixth grade, seventh grade, junior high type of group, and those met on Wednesday night, so we would haul our children um, there, but there wasn't really a place um, for the adults um, at that time. So we would drop our kids off, go home, and come back. During one of these times, I decided to go meet with one of these other mothers at McDonald's, and so we went and had coffee, and we talked about how there should be a there should be a group for women or for parents to get together during during this time. And so out of that, we just decided to start it. So we initiated a devotional meeting group at that time and got permission from the church to meet in the church office while the kids were out there. And we ended up with um, eight to 10 women over time that were a part of that. And we, um, we called ourselves Devotions with Friends. We would go through the approach for Bible study that um, Wayne Cadero had developed, the uh, the SOAP process, and we would commit to doing the SOAP process during the day and journaling about that and, and journaling our prayers. And then when we got together, we would pick one of those devotions moments to share with the group. As we did that, we learned what was on the hearts of one another and what our needs and joys were. And it was a really meaningful time, and that continued um, up until I had made the decision to go to Atlanta with the church plant. So 10 years later, how would you say, when you are able now to go back and look at the process that you've gone through, what would you say are some of the key principles or key things that happened to you that helped you in your grief? I'm going to switch it around just a little bit okay. for you. Um, I would say 
much of what helped me we've already we've already talked about. Um, but where there was a real need in my life that wasn't touched, um, I would like to mention, and sure. that's when I was the twelve year old girl who was um, who lost her dad. Okay. So there was um, there were support and resources who were that were there for my mother. But as 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 kids, we were pretty much ignored in that process and not really treated like we had issues to work through. That's kind of the the area where I think we need to put some attention that maybe attention hasn't been on is um, how to care for these kids who have lost their mom or lost their dad. So there's um, there's care for kids who have um, lost both their parents through foster care and that sort of situation, but also but often the kid who has lost one parent through death also kind of lost the other parent because the other parent is um, wrapped up in their own grief and also wrapped in trying to figure out how to just meet the physical needs of the household and the family and such. So there's a real vacancy there. Tell me a little bit about what do you see as the value of having an organization like the Widows Project? I think that one of the values is that it, it, it just states that there is this population of people that are unique and have unique needs to be met, and we can rally around them and help support them and care for their needs. The needs are diverse, where one of the areas in which the Widow Project steps in is giving safe resources for widows to go out there and into the marketplace, because there's so much scamming and abuse that has taken place, and and even where that doesn't exist, there's always the fear of that, mm-hmm. you know, out there in the marketplace. When, when, um, when women, in particular, are outside of their knowledge base and need services and help. That is critical, isn't it? Because it is. you're vulnerable, and you know you're vulnerable, and that almost makes you more vulnerable, doesn't yeah, it? it does. It, doesn't it? So it there does. needs to be trusted people who you can count on that are going to help you, whether it's buying a car, repairing a car, yeah. getting repairs done on your home, or financial yes. help, or that sort of thing. And then the grief programs and processes that they take you through are very valuable. That program was started you know, within the last year and a half or two years. At that point, I had worked through in practical means the grief that I had over the loss of John. There's a grief that will always remain over the loss of John um, as I remember the, the man I married and, and the friend and everything that I had. And I miss that. Mm-hmm. And I'll never stop missing that. But as far as just dealing with the shock and the realities of being um, suddenly a widow, um, I had worked well through that. But there are many who have not and who are in earlier stages. So that's an invaluable resource to them. Do you think uh, seeing you go through the process of grief and coming out healthier has helped your kids? I hope so. Interestingly enough, my daughter still has not cried over the death of her dad, and uh, and they were very close. But um, that bothered me for a long time. And then just in um, in the past three or four years, she disclosed to me, and she hadn't before, um, that she had had a dream about him the night before he died. In that dream, she saw the Lord. He told her that Dad was with him, and, that, and then she saw the two of them walking together. So that helps me understand a little mm-hmm. bit why she hasn't cried, because she's had that assurance. Think of the the shortest scripture in the Bible, Jesus wept, and that was at a funeral. And that was at the loss of a loved one. And so our Lord understands the issues of grief and death. 
and he knows. If someone is listening today and uh, they're going through the grieving process, whether they lost someone last month or they lost them 15 years ago, but there's still that issue in their life and there's still that pain, what would you say to them if you were talking to them face-to-face right now? I would say, one, grab a good book, Jerry Sitzer's book, A Grace Disguised, and read through it and cry through it together. I think embracing and walking with the pain is the best way through the pain. One of the hard things for me was just finding the place to cry and sit with the pain because after having been the child of somebody who's been deeply involved in the the programs that my mom was, I had heard many times over again the, the steps of grief and all of that. So I was more familiar intellectually with what one might need to do through there. So I didn't try to stop the tears or to stop the pain, except where it was socially inappropriate. If I was at work, it wasn't a good place. So I would, you know, <laughs> have you to, <laughs> yes, yeah, so I'd have to redirect my, my thoughts or my conversation in such a way and then use the drive home to revisit those things and, mm-hmm. to, and to deal with them. And um, to use the uh, Saturday Saturday mornings to sit with the Word and to sit with God and, and to go through those things. You know, you can't beat a teenager in staying up late to get that quiet time, but you can sure get up early and have all of it you want. Thank you, Maureen, for sharing your story. I appreciate it very much. Good. You're welcome. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.